Have you ever noticed throughout the Gospels how often Jesus asked questions? According to some counts, Jesus is recorded asking other people at least 307 different questions. He, uh, he is asked 183, but only answers directly less than 10. Uh, questions were, of course, a very common educational tool or style for Jewish rabbis, but Jesus' questions are especially interesting because they require intense reflection into heart issues. I want us to look today at two questions in particular that Jesus asked and explore why they were important for Jesus to ask then and why they're important for us today. I invite you to use this time together um, to reflect on how Jesus is calling you into a deeper relationship with him through this text. Feel free to join me, turn in your Bibles as we read Luke 9, 18 through 20. Luke 9, 18 to 20. Friends, this is the word of God. Now it happened as he was praying alone, being Jesus, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's pause for a moment to gather some context for this conversation. As you know from reading through the Gospel of Luke as a church family, uh, the author of this book is Luke, a Gentile physician who makes special care to emphasize the human nature of Jesus as the Son of God. This is an important theme for us to recognize as we spend time understanding this passage today because we have to put ourselves in the space the disciples held at this time. The Jewish people were in a state of weary anticipation. They'd been actively waiting for a Messiah to come to their rescue since the Babylonian captivity, and they haven't had a prophet in 400 years. Now we find in Luke 1, um, the birth of John the Baptist announced. And just like that, after 400 years, the Jewish people find the coming Messiah proclaimed again. Can you imagine You've heard stories of a Messiah coming to rescue his people your whole life. And now there's a man walking among you, proclaiming to prepare the way for that Messiah. He's coming. He's almost here. That would certainly uh, heighten the anticipation, no? When we arrive at Luke 9, uh, Jesus' ministry has already become famous. He's been preaching for months, and his presence is well known far and wide. He has cast out demons, calmed storms, raised the dead, healed the sick, fed the 5,000, dined with marginalized people, and helped some fishermen change their business plans. But Luke 9 is especially pivotal, a turning point, if you will, between Jesus and his followers. 
Here is where we arrive at Jesus' two questions to his disciples. Now remember, they've seen his miracles and teaching. They've walked the dusty roads with him. But they have not yet come to fully understand the direction of God's story and do not anticipate what is yet to come. So Jesus takes pause and leaves Israel with his disciples. This conversation takes place north of Israel in Gentile territory in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus recognizes that this little group has held a certain picture in their minds of what a Messiah should look like, and he's about to reveal in greater detail God's plan of reconciliation through a Messiah who would first die on a cross and then rise again. I don't know about you, but the image that comes to mind for me is one from a really great movie. You know that, that point in the story um, where there's, it's building to the climax and a leader kind of rallies his troops together, calls them close, and, and just inspires them through a compelling call to action, laying out the plan. But Jesus doesn't go straight to the plan. First, he checks in on his team. You get a sense here as Jesus asks his disciples these very direct questions that this is a turning point in their willingness to follow him. Almost like he's saying, do you understand and accept the mission? He's never been quite so direct with them before. We see this first question in verse 18. Who do the crowds say that I am? His disciples' response includes some of the most popular theories in that time about who Jesus was. Verse 19, and they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. These answers are revealing. The common people loved Jesus, but they did not understand who he was. They were fascinated by him, drawn to him. And why shouldn't they be? They recognized and were responding to his very visible power and authority. The reports of his healings and his miracles had attracted thousands. What stands out to me as we look at their answers is something we see today as well. It's quite possible to admire Jesus, even be drawn to him, and be completely wrong about who he is. It's possible to be open to spiritual truth and still miss Jesus. Does this feel familiar, at all typical of today? If Jesus was here asking us this question, what would you say? Who do the crowds say that I am? Do you even know? Does it come up? Um, a 2011 National Household Survey revealed that one in four Canadians no longer claim alignment to any religion. But I have found it's not always this absence of religious affiliation that stops us from understanding who people think Jesus is. More often, it's a lack of engagement with people who are not like us. Uh, and quite possibly, we feel stuck introducing Jesus to people because we have not personally answered this question. Perhaps some of you here today, if we are honest with ourselves, have experienced this error of proximity. You too are drawn to Jesus, curious enough to stay close, attend church, 
Perhaps you've grown up around Jesus, so you speak the language of his followers. Or perhaps in your pursuit of Jesus, you have found he isn't what you expected. Like the Jewish community thousands of years ago, who were looking for a military leader to save them from oppressive rulers, not a king who would die on a cross, you feel disappointed that Jesus isn't fitting into your vision of who you want God to be. Perhaps others of us are just not quite sure how to engage with those not yet following Jesus. I can admit that I'm an extrovert, so talking to people pretty much anywhere isn't an issue for me, but I want to encourage you today to take this first question on as a bit of a personal mission. Often, it isn't actually through talking, but listening to others, that we earn the right to ask those around us this question. My family and I were just in Phoenix two weeks ago visiting my sister and her family for spring break. And on our way back home, we booked a shuttle from the airport to take us to where we had parked our minivan. Uh, Immediately, I recognized our driver to have an accent, and I suspected he may speak Arabic. This is especially fun for our family because my husband was born in Egypt and also speaks Arabic. I love watching the bond that instantly develops between people who are able to speak to each other in their birth language. Conversation was immediately easy. The driver asked us excitedly if we know what our name means in English. It translates as Joseph. Um, And he delighted to point out similarities in other names, um, the similarities between Arabic and English, including the name of Jesus. And in that moment, it struck me how easy it is to talk about Jesus. And yet all that really matters was not that we both knew of Jesus, but rather who we acknowledged him to be. There will always be many who can agree that Jesus was a good man, even a great man or prophet, and yet they will not worship him because they do not acknowledge him as Messiah, son of the living God. Many of you are familiar with the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, For those of you that don't know this author, Lewis was one of the greatest Christian apologists of the 20th century. And in this book, he addresses this idea of admiring Jesus as a man, but not as God himself. Here's a bit of what he wrote. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, who do those around you say that Jesus is? How can you more deeply engage with your neighbors and those in your sphere of influence to learn this? Do you need to make more space for relationship in your life? Do you need to open up your home to those who are not like you, who don't think like you, 
maybe even those who don't look like you. And when you do this, will you have an answer for them? This brings us to the second question. So Jesus has asked his disciples who others say that he is, and now he takes it personal. Looking at these eager followers, he asks them quite directly to declare for themselves who he is. And Peter responds with similar directness. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Or as some translations put it, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. His answer reveals both a true and a supernatural understanding of Jesus. His answer is both a confession and a declaration and reveals his readiness to follow Jesus. So now it's our turn. Jesus takes the time to make this question personal. So I want to create space for that too. Who do you say Jesus is? You see, our response to who Jesus is will determine our ability to respond to his instruction to us on how to live. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, we are to submit to his leadership as the son of God and our entire life should be surrendered to him. The kingdom of God begins in our hearts and minds when we transfer our alignment from self to Christ. And we have a very clear example to follow, Jesus' very example on how then we should live. You see, if Jesus had only preached in his example of ministry, we might be tempted to declare his kingdom only spiritual. And if he had only healed people's bodies, we might miss the mission of spiritual reconciliation. But Jesus' ministry reveals to us the holistic nature of living in right relationship with him in all areas of our lives. So how does this impact us? Well, let me give you a couple of examples from my life and spiritual journey. As you know, I've had the privilege of working with Food for the Hungry for over 11 years and was drawn to FH because of their understanding of poverty and the way that it reflects this principle of holistic ministry. FH introduced me to a totally new understanding of poverty, a holistic understanding. Here's a definition of poverty by Bryant Myers, an author. Um, he wrote, Walking with the Poor, and this is a reference that FH uses regularly. Here's what it says. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Now, shalom is most often recognized as a word communicating peace, but biblical references to shalom often speak to inner completeness or wholeness, referring back to the way we were intended to live in right relationship with God, self, others, and creation in the garden before the fall. So our view at Food for the Hungry is that the root of all poverty, both material and non-material poverty, stems from broken relationship with God, self, others, and creation. So if broken relationships are the root issue of poverty, then reconciled relationships are the solution. These reconciled relationships bring shalom or wholeness to our lives. 
And this definition is important because we believe that how you define a problem determines your solution to that problem. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to uh, Uganda to visit some of our partner communities there. And I took the time to stop in and visit a community, um, the community of Mahai. They actually graduated out of our programming in 2010. So it's been nine years. And I wanted to just sit down with the community leaders and catch up and find out what God was doing in their community after Food for the Hungry. But let me back up. When FH first arrived in Mahai in 2000, uh, staff came to realize quite quickly that the community actually believed it was cursed, that a dog skull had been buried in the center of their village, and there was nothing they could do to change their future. You see, when FH arrives in a community, our staff have to begin the work of development by being with community leaders and listening to understand their worldview and the root issues that are behind some of the challenges that they're facing. We have to uncover the foundational belief systems held by families in order to help them reorient towards a biblical perspective. It was during this process that staff uncovered Mahai's belief that they were cursed. And then from this point, they were able to spend time laying the foundation for a biblical understanding for their community and lives through the truth of who Jesus is. Then we build programs. Because you can build a school, but until you walk with parents and help them understand that their children are created in the image of God and hold intrinsic value, you won't fill the school. The ideas about education won't change and the building will stay empty. You can have an agricultural program and teach best practices around farming, but until you help people reorient their worldview into an abundance perspective instead of a scarcity perspective and teach them that God ha will provide for them, then all of those best practices fall to the side and will ultimately um, result in unsustainable food security. The same is true for health and income generation programs. Until Jesus is the foundation and our ideas have changed about how he wants ownership and domain from every area, those programs will not make change. Naturally, when worldview and ideas have been reoriented to Jesus, there is incredible transformation. Communities and family leaders um, inviting Jesus into all areas of their life. FH walks alongside communities for 10 years because it's a discipleship model. We empower leaders, churches, and families to give every area of their life to Christ in order to move from stuck to thriving. I attended this church in Mahai and enjoyed lunch with the community leaders and listened to their passionate updates uh, about their community. Um, I found it really fascinating and really meaningful that they only speak we. FH is never mentioned, we did this. Jesus helped us do this. It's, it's something that they've, because the changes happen from the inside out, right? So they, they take this ownership um, and it's a huge celebration. So some of the changes since they've graduated, the government has built a factory in their community for cassava because their food production is so high. The government has come in and built a secondary school for disabled children because so many of that vulnerable population are successfully getting through primary school. 
The primary school itself for disabled children actually didn't exist while FH was walking with this community. It was a need they identified on their own after we left when they looked around their community and said, who are the vulnerable still among us and how do we serve them? The headmistress at the school actually took it upon herself to learn sign language and introduce different tools and resources to the school um, so that they could serve that population and, and they're thriving. Best of all, as lunch came to a close, uh, our FH Uganda team leader that was with us, um, he leaned on his cane and he looked at those leaders and he goes, friends, are you still cursed? They, the group literally jumped to their feet and cheered and they said, no, we're not cursed. We are loved by Jesus. I want you to know, Southview, that your investment into Sasiga is enabling this work of transformation in Ethiopia. You are investing into a discipleship program that is changing how people think about Jesus, but it's also changing how they think about agriculture and about their children and about each other and about business. It's changing everything. Just like the families in the communities where FH works, this definition of poverty as broken relationship means we experience poverty as well. Now there's no more us and them, just us. Broken humanity in need of a savior. We all need transformation and reconciliation in order to overcome poverty and thrive. Working with FH has absolutely deepened my relationship with God. I'm grateful to have been born into a family with uh, parents who truly modeled what it looked like to love and follow Jesus. And I pledged my allegiance to Jesus when I was just six years old and in a WANA program at our church. But there's so many steps to our spiritual journey, right? We, our understanding of who Jesus is changes as we grow and mature. Um, I'm thankful that even how my six-year-old sees me will evolve and grow, right? So as a teenager, I more fully aligned my life to Christ by declaring my willingness to serve him anywhere in any way. Each stage of my life has taught me more about who Jesus is and more of what's required for me to live fully alive in him. Then when I was 14 years old, my dad was diagnosed with leukemia. When I was 16 years old, he passed away. As you can imagine, this was a very difficult experience to go through. But I am grateful that my faith in, in Jesus and my understanding of who he was was already strong enough for me to lean on him through that process. In university, I found myself releasing even more of my heart to Christ and finding great joy through Christian community and through an opportunity to share about Christ to those who didn't yet know him through an evangelism ministry. I have tried to live my life fully surrendered and open to, to Jesus. Fast forward a few years um, after university, I'm married and my husband and I have two young girls when one of my dear friends is diagnosed with breast cancer. Her son was about the same age as my youngest daughter. And God chose to take her home and I found a great fear enter my heart. I found that um, surrendering my whole life to him had come quite easily, but suddenly I was gripped with a terrifying fear that he might take my family. 
It's an entirely different thing to surrender um, your family to Jesus as it is to surrender your own heart. At least for me, that was my journey. So this great fear crept into my heart. And uh, for about three years, I only slept about three hours at a time. Yes, partly because it's that season of life. Mums get that. Um, But also out of a great fear and anxiety and needing to check on my children multiple times during the night. Through the Holy Spirit, God's word, and my community, I realized that I had been unknowingly building walls in my heart around my family, not really trusting God with them. God, I'll give you everything else, but not my family. And I felt convicted that I had been trying to take care of my family on my own strength, and I felt confronted with this question. Who is Jesus to me? I have declared my whole life to trust him. Do I trust him with this? Do I trust him even if? I didn't recognize that my pain had caused me to dilute who I believe Jesus to be. And then instead of pushing down that fear, I I wish I'd embraced it earlier and, and invited Jesus into it. But Jesus did meet me in my fear. I was able to confess it to him. And my husband and I held a special child dedication in our home with a pastor and our community where I asked them to hold me accountable and to walk with me in this um, journey. And I had to recommit in my heart that I trusted Jesus and that who he is is still true, even if... He never promised to prevent pain, but he has promised to sustain us in it. If you only take one thing away today, let it be this. Jesus wants all of you. And who you believe him to be will influence every single area of your life and behavior. We must first answer this question of who Jesus is. Because to be almost right about Jesus is to be totally wrong. Admiring his teaching is not enough. Approving of his care for the poor and marginalized is not enough. Admitting his authority is not enough. James 2.19 tells us even the demons acknowledge Jesus as Lord. We must recognize and declare him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, accept his gift of reconciliation to God through his death on the cross and completely align our lives to him. So where do you stand? Can you stake your life on your answer? Does Jesus have all of you? Does he have domain over your business? Does he have authority over your marriage or your singleness? Do you trust him with your children? How about your thought life? those parts of your life that those around you cannot actually see. There's another important piece of this passage that we still need to acknowledge. Verses 21 to 23. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I often wondered why Jesus would ask the disciples not to tell anyone this critical piece of information confirming his position as the Messiah. Isn't that the exact news the people have been waiting for? 
But my study Bible offered me this perspective. By telling people that Jesus was the Messiah now brought with it the very real possibility that the ministry he still wanted to accomplish would be derailed because he, they would want to immediately crown him as king. Their expectation of Messiah was not at all aligned with what had to happen next. But we do know the story. We're in the season of Lent where we wait in anticipation to remember Jesus' death and then celebrate his resurrection. And in these 40 days, we also remember the 40 days where Jesus withdrew to the desert before his ministry began. And in that time in the desert, Jesus meditated on his identity with the Father and confronted the temptation to bypass all that following God's plan would cost him. The passage we've looked at today shows Jesus taking the time to help his followers also pause to confirm their identity or his identity and to confront the reality of what was still ahead. If we look further in the chapter, we would see that eight days after this conversation, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up the mountain to pray. And we see in verse 31, Jesus again discusses all he is about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Then suddenly a cloud appears and God speaks directly to them answering himself the very question Jesus posed to them eight days earlier. He declared, we see in verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The most compelling answer to Jesus' question is his father's answer. Of course, we can all be impressed by the wonders of Jesus, but Jesus' mind and example is what is yet to come and what he needs from his father. He has a mission of glory, but it's a glory that's going to come through suffering. And it's through Jesus' sufferings on the cross and his resurrection that we find the only way for any of us to experience shalom or wholeness or healing. It's where we can experience freedom from poverty. You see, Jesus is the remedy for all forms of poverty. In our lives and in the lives of the vulnerable, all around the world. Do you have brokenness in your life right now? Is there an area where you need to experience healing? Are you living in right and reconciled relationship with God, self, others, and creation? I want to sit with this for just a minute. Ask Jesus to show you what you need to release to him what you need to trust him with. Let him speak to your heart what comes to mind. There is freedom and healing in Jesus. You can trust him. Here is what I know. Determining our understanding of who Jesus is will help us with what is still ahead as we wait for his final return while we wait for kingdom come. We are told to expect suffering. Each one of us is going to face, if we haven't already, difficulty, doubt, disappointment, and loss. Perhaps the loss of a dream or the loss of a loved one. I also know that Jesus can handle our questions and that our fears are not too big. Our doubt is not too much. But first we have to make a decision about who Jesus is 
and then lean on him as an anchor through all that comes. We are invited to be a part of God's plan of reconciliation to the world. 2 Corinthians 5.20 declares us to be Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal for reconciliation to the world through us. God is making his appeal for reconciliation in Sasiga, Ethiopia through you and through your partnership with that community. Sasiga is one of my very most favorite places, and I'd love to take you there. So we are a part of his plan to invite people back into wholeness, to bring justice, and to live with joy and hope while we wait in the tension between the garden and kingdom come, if we choose to join him. So, who is Jesus to you? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you and we acknowledge who you are. You are a great God, worthy of our trust through everything we might face. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond to the areas in our life you have identified that we are holding back. God, we trust you to heal the brokenness. We are trusting you to um, heal us and give us the wholeness and freedom that you created us to experience. Thank you for your love, thank you for the cross, and thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.